Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, all the world is focused on the United Kingdom and the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and you can read all about her extraordinary life and accomplishments at WashingtonPost.com. But our attention this morning is on the sprint to the November term elections here at home. Control of the U.S. Senate may come down to the Buckeye State, Ohio. So let's start with Annie Linsky. She is the national political reporter here at the Washington Post. Annie, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Hi, good to be here. We are now eight and a half weeks from voters deciding who will control Congress in the final two years of President Biden's first term. The president spoke to supporters at a DNC meeting in Maryland yesterday, and he began by highlighting the issues he believes will help Democrats in the midterm elections, but it's the first one he mentions that's key. Let's listen. 60 days, 60 days from the midterm elections. So I want to be crystal clear about what's at stake in the ballot. Your right to choose is on the ballot. No, this is a fact. These are not, it's not hyperbole, any of this. So, Annie, what's the broad outlook for the Senate? Could Democrats maintain control? And is abortion the issue to help them do it? Yeah, you know, I think um, initially when the Roe versus Wade decision was um, made by the Supreme Court, um, there was a sense among uh, political strategists that this was going to be an issue that would perhaps help Democrats around the margins. It would, um, in some races, help a little bit. Um, and in fact, that prediction has turned out, like so many other predictions, to be completely wrong. And abortion has really driven up excitement well, excitement's the wrong word, I suppose motivation across the board for Democrats. And so, you know, you're seeing in poll after poll um, and also in a series of special elections over the summer that the sort of Democrats' enthusiasm, what they call, what um, uh, political strategists call an enthusiasm gaps, uh, sort of Democrats have closed this gap. So Republicans were really motivated to vote this year, but this abortion decision has just turned up that motivation for Democrats as well. And now you're seeing both sides about equally motivated for their base voters to turn out. And that has had an enormous consequence on the Senate map um, to where there are you know, many who believe that Democrats have a shot at holding, keeping control of the Senate, but even deeper into the House map where um, there are some you know, very well-respected strategists who are beginning to say Democrats even have of path to hold on to the House, and it's because that enthusiasm gap has closed. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that before I ask you about Ohio, because I was the follow-up question was going to be, which is, um, which is having more of an impact on these elections? Is it abortion? Is it the Democratic legislative accomplishments, inflation, the travails of Donald Trump, all of the above, um, some combination of all of them? 
Yeah, I think it is a combination of, of all of them. And it depends, of course, on on the voter. I mean, Republicans had gone into this election season wanting the election to be a referendum on Joe Biden and on an economy that, you know, is doing a little better right now. But still, there are dire forecasts for um, that's what Republicans wanted the focus to be that and also crime. But, you know, it's turn the reality is turning out to be a little different. And that's because Democrats are doing an effective of jobs sort of packaging together this idea of Republicans um, taking away you know freedoms in, in terms of reproductive rights but also packaging in the um, Mar-a-Lago uh, raid and the January 6th hearings and also a hesitancy um, for among Republicans to tackle um, gun violence and their Democrats are effectively sort of packaging this as sort of Republicans having a very extreme agenda and making this election, for some voters at least, more of a referendum on Republican uh, ideas rather than Democratic ones. And if you um, you know pair that with Democrats actually doing some governing as they have over the summer, showing that they can um, you, you know pull their very fractious party together and you know effectively you know pass fairly major pieces of legislation you are having a different kind of tone going into september october than many predicted there would be and that tone does favor democrats a little bit and is helping them in some of these races perfect segue to um, questions about ohio you've done a lot of reporting uh, on the senate race in ohio between um, the democratic opponent congressman tim ryan and the Trump-endorsed Republican candidate, J.D. Vance, who has the momentum right now? Well, I, surprisingly, here in the state um, that Joe Biden um, lost by eight percentage points um, to, to Donald Trump, you know, the, the Democrat, Tim Ryan, has the momentum. I mean, he's coming in to this election season with this narrative that he is a kind of come from behind working class Democrat who's been work, who's also, you know, had a, a summer full of events. He's had, you know, a, a massive fundraising advantage over J.D. Vance, the Republican. So this is a, a, a sort of one of the biggest surprises on the map because Ohio really ought to be an easy, it's been seen as sort of a cakewalk for Republicans. When J.D. Vance won the primary, people thought, and you know, he would very easily be the next senator from Ohio, and he very well may be. But this summer, J.D. Um, JD Vance has not been on the campaign trail, and Tim Ryan um, has taken the upper hand. Now, this may all change, but you, you do have this event coming up, you know, he, where the president of the United States, who has been unpopular, is going to be in Ohio, standing with other Democrats and Republicans, um, campaigning on an issue that even some of Vance's advisors have said is the issue that everybody in the state should be campaigning on, which is a kind of a massive jobs program, a massive jobs investment in the state by a, a, a new um, Intel plant. So J.D. Vance has somehow managing to, you know, portray himself as a, you know, working class candidate in a working class state. Um, but he's also being able to, you know, grab on to some of the accomplishments of the Biden administration without seeming like he's too close to Biden. And that's a difficult um, balance to make, but he's been able to do it so far. So you raised a good point. The president leaves for Ohio. He will be in Ohio. And as you said, Donald Trump won Ohio 
twice in 16 and 20 by eight points. So is Congressman Ryan going to be at the event with the president? Yeah, he is. Um, and this is, you know, Ryan's campaign had suggested that there was a little bit of hesitancy. Would he campaign with Biden? Would he not? Um, this, of course, is an official event. Um, so there is some distinction between a campaign event and official event. But that is a distinction that I think is probably lost on most voters. Um, but this event um, today in, in Ohio um, is also one that um, Governor DeWine, who's a Republican, is going to be at. I mean, the um, this new plant that Intel is putting is building in Ohio is so popular that there have been like multiple openings for it. This is kind of like a, a welcome, a series of, of groundbreaking events. I mean, you think that are going to actually have slowly built the entire thing. The ground has been broken <laughs> so many times. Um, and just sort of everybody wants to be a be part of it. So, um, you know, Biden is there. It's also interesting that Ro Khanna, a congressman from California, California, is also going to be there. Yeah. And that's because, of course, Intel is headquartered in his district in California. But his appearance in Ohio to celebrate, again, the opening of, of this plan and the investment that Intel is making in sort of the heartland of the country um, just shows you how incredibly popular politicians from, you know, it's one of the rare kind of bipartisan events that almost every candidate for office wants to be part of, even mm -hmm. somebody from California. I'm gonna have to ask Congressman Khanna about that because um, that's a curious itinerary. I don't care if Intel is in your, is headquartered in your district. Very curious. Uh, <laughs> um, I had one more question for you, but we are, I'm looking at the clock, we're out of time. Annie Linsky, as a national political reporter at the Washington Post says always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. <laughs> so we're going to keep this conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, Josh Rogan and Jennifer Rubin. Josh, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Nice Thanks to be with you. Jennifer, I'm starting with you. We're talking about the midterms. We're going to keep talking about the midterms. You had a column this week. Uh, saying the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, that is the Dobbs decision, changed everything about this election cycle and that the pundits will be wrong again. Explain. Well, when the opinion was originally leaked, if you remember, um, a few weeks before the actual opinion came out, um, as Annie said, um, there were a lot of people who were poo-pooing the effect. Well, the results will be mixed politically. Um, people who are in favor of abortion rights will be mad and will be um, motivated to come to the polls. And people who are opposed to abortion rights will be happy and they'll be motivated to come to the polls. Um, I suspected at the time that that was wrong and it has really turned out to be so. Uh, I think the notion that rights are being taken away, something is being lost, um, that women feel that they are being disrespected, that their personhood is being uh, denigrated, is a much more powerful draw than it is for Republicans to, if you will, celebrate um, something that they have politically sought for decades. And I think you see this 
just about everywhere. You saw it in Kansas, of all places, where a referendum that was going to remove uh, an access to abortion right in the state constitution was rejected, not just by a little bit, but overwhelmingly. Yeah. And the statistic that I point to is something that Tom Bonnier from Target Smart, which is a Democratic uh, data and polling uh, organization came up with. And that is since the Dobbs decision, if you look at new registrants, new people who are registering to vote, it is very heavily tipped towards women. And that I suspect has got to come from a reaction to the Dobbs opinion. And so what we see is in real time, the electorate is actually changing. When you saw the results in Kansas, 56% of the electorate was women. That's extraordinary. Usually you see maybe 50.5, 51 at most. But if you're going to have an electorate that is that heavily tipped towards women, Democrats are going to have a big advantage because most women are Democrats. Um, so it's a fascinating um, reversal. Um, I don't want to say it's the only factor. Certainly the whole slew of legislative accomplishments has been really big. In interviews I've had with a whole series of Democrats running in swing districts, they are hugely relieved to now be able to tell their constituents that they delivered on these things. Uh, but I do think it's an emotional issue. Uh, Dobbs looms very, very large. And Josh, I saw you nodding in agreement um, during Jennifer's answer, but I'm just wondering if there's any evidence um, of, the, of an equi equivalent increase in enthusiasm by those who applauded the the Dobbs decision um, that struck down Roe v. Wade. Right, right. Well, you know, I don't specifically disagree with any of the facts that Jen put forward. I'm much less uh, uh, um, convinced that this represents any fundamental shift in the way that the actual races are going to come out in November for very simple reasons that this Kansas referendum was on one specific issue. And when voters go to the polls, it will really be about the economy. It will really be about what's going on in their lives. And it'll really be a, a choice between two specific candidates who in each case have their own pluses and minuses. I mean, the bottom line is, first of all, as you pointed out, Jonathan, the, the abortion uh, decision uh, drives enthusiasm on both sides. And there's a lot of things, there's no lack of enthusiasm or money on either side. Uh, you know, the legislative wins are big in Washington, but, you know, won't produce real change in people's lives before November. Same thing with the economy. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Democrats enjoy having better talking points, but will people really believe that things are getting better or that, you know, the, the basic desire uh, for change will go away. I, I, I just don't think so. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I think in, in Washington and in the press, we have this constant desire to come up with new narratives because we got to keep writing about this thing for eight more weeks. And, you know, we can't write the same thing eight, eight weeks in a row. So Democrats will go, go up and then they go down and the economy gets a little better. And then, you know, the, the Democrats have wind beneath their uh, under the, behind their sails and then they don't. And, you know, eight weeks later, we're back where we started, which is the fact that the fundamentals favorably help heavily favor the idea that the Republicans will take over at least one House of Congress, which will lead to two years of political chaos and policy paralysis and the beginning of the most contentious presidential election in our American history. I think the analogy you were looking for, Josh, was wind beneath their wings. Uh, no, wind <laughs> behind their sails. But anyway, it doesn't, either one works. <laughs> I mean, same thing. It's yeah. pretty much the same thing. Tomato, tomato. Uh, I as you were speaking, I, I heard an extra commentary. I believe I heard a meow. Did I hear that? Yes. Yeah, we have some oh. uninvited guests here in the in the in the Rogan I studio. Think that's, we call that internal dissent. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jennifer, I want to turn our attention to, to Donald Trump. Um, our newspaper reported this week that um, Donald Trump is planning an aggressive midterm schedule, including rallies, robocalls, virtual appearances. Uh, who does that help or hurt? Well, certainly Republicans think that that drives the base out. Um, but what we're looking at and when we're talking about uh, changing the control of one or both houses of Congress is those states that are relatively close um, and those districts that are relatively close. Um, perhaps they were districts that Biden carried by one or two points or there are states like Ohio, which uh, Annie was talking about. And when you're talking about swing voters, when you're talking about uh, people who are not died and will Republicans, um, my own take is that it really hurts them. Um, Donald Trump being in the news and reminding everyone what a disaster he is um, and watching Republicans bend over backwards to try to justify and rationalize why he left the White House with some of our most closely guarded uh, secrets, including human intelligence, including nuclear information about our allies, um, really, I don't think is helpful. And what I think is really so important is that Republicans aren't able to focus on the issue that helps them the most, which is inflation. Um, they've gotten completely off track. They're talking now about abortion. They're having to delete from their websites um, mention of their very extreme positions on abortion. Um, Democrats are talking about these new accomplishments. Um, the Republicans are having to either step aside from or rationalize or uh, pretend they haven't heard about the Mar-a-Lago crisis. And so when they're not focused on the one issue that could really help them, that's a bad thing. And Donald Trump has the ability to really just hijack an entire election. This is what happened in Georgia, if you remember, when those two Senate seats um, after the general election were at issue. Donald Trump simply came in, convinced everybody that um, things were fixed, that voting was uh, not going to result in uh, any uh, legitimate election. Uh, and lo and behold, they lost those two seats. So I got to think that uh, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are kind of cringing at the thought that Donald Trump is going to be um, front page news again. That really does not help um, their candidates, particularly their um, moderate candidates, particularly the candidates who maybe won for the first time winning Democratic seats uh, in 2020. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a great segue to the question I was going to ask you, Josh, and that's about the balancing act. Act. What's the balancing act for Republican um, for a Republican candidate between accepting Donald Trump's support, even campaigning with him, while at the same time not losing any independents who may still find the former president reprehensible? Right. Well, to be honest, Jonathan, I think there's more of a balancing act going on on the Democratic side with a problematic President Biden. And you see that with what we just talked about with Tim Ryan in Ohio. Does he even want to stand on the stage with him? Uh, and it has good and bad points. But the Republican Party, I, I don't think anyone in uh, in this uh, event would disagree that they're not balancing. They're just trying to st stay stand. They're, it's just a chaos. It's just a three ring circus. And, you know, Donald Trump owns that party, he continues to own that party, and that's not likely going to change. And the the Mar-a-Lago uh, 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 document gate is just shows that it doesn't matter if Republicans want to start to distance themselves from Trump. He won't be distanced from. He won't release his hold. And, you know, again, th that will have good effects for some candidates like J.D. Vance, who's in a state that Trump won by eight points in 2020. And it'll have bad effects for you know, Republicans like Dr. Oz, who are in a, in a state where Trump lost to Biden in 2020. But 
there, I don't think McConnell or McCarthy or any of these guys has any notion that they can balance at this point. They're just trying to hold on for dear life, okay? And if they let go, they let go of their base. They let go of their voters. They let go of their power. And that's why you see most of them just clinging on to Trump uh, with all of the good and bad that that brings along with it because uh, there's no there's no choice here. He owns the party now, and that's not going to change at least for the next two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, oh, so I should be leaning this way, camera-wise. I'm trying. I'm trying to listen to see if I hear any more meowed dissent <laughs> <laughs> from 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 within your house. He's distracted. Jennifer, I'm just. We lost Dizzy. Ah, uh, so Jennifer, I, I'm wondering. Do you agree? I was sort of struck by what Josh said, and that is, he believes it's not the Republicans who have a balancing act; it's the Democrats. What do you make of Josh's argument? was more true at the beginning of the summer before he had all of these um, legislative accomplishments. Um, you see he's now going up in the polls. His, his polling is not great, um, but it's back above where many presidents are, frankly, at the midterm level. Um, you see a lot of polls showing him at 44, 45 percent, um, which is probably good news for Democrats. You also see people who want to get in on these accomplishments. And ultimately, not only Tim Ryan, but as you pointed out, Ro Khanna, a congressman from California, um, wants to be seen as delivering on these benefits. Biden and other members of the administration can go to uh, new plants like the Intel plant. They can go to um, places where the infrastructure bill is bringing billions of dollars. And sort of the telltale sign is you see Republicans trying to take credit for some of these things after they have voted against them, um, in some cases unanimously. So I think that uh, kind of sense of unease about being with Biden has really uh, diminished quite a bit. And you now hear um, Democrats um, obviously wanting to tout these accomplishments. And you can argue maybe Biden wasn't all that um, central in coming up with the um, in inflation reduction uh, plan. This was actually uh, Schumer and uh, Joe Manchin, um, but he's going to take credit for it. And certainly the party is going to take credit for it. I also think the Republicans um, may have erred in being so dogmatically opposed to anything and everything that uh, Democrats came forward with. They've cast a lot of questionable votes over the last month or so, including votes in opposition to things like contraception. So I think um, if you're trying to decide who is um, more uncomfortable with their leader, um, it may have shifted just a little bit. But I see that adorable cat from Josh, and uh, we can't ah. take time. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, uh, Josh, introduce our third panelist. Uh, this is Dizzy Gillespie Rogan, and uh, he's a non-affiliated independent. <laughs> Dizzy, I, I, you know, I, and I am, a, I am a cat lover. And Dizzy, if you have anything that you want to, you want to add to this conversation, uh, please do. But Josh, um, I want to no keep talking. I want to keep talking about the. Oh, poor, poor Dizzy Gillespie. Um, let's talk about the economy because Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, said, and I quote, um, the economy is, quote, uniquely suited for a supply side expansion that delivers sustainable growth and reduces inequality. So, Josh, is it possible that the economy could actually help Democrats this fall? Right. You know, listen, I, I, I think those long term uh, you know, predictions are easy to make because by the time they come true or don't come true, the most people will have forgotten about and the elections will be way over. You know, I don't think that uh, down ticks in inflation are 
noticeable in people's pocketbooks, you know, there's a lag of months, if not several months on that. So again, it doesn't come in time to get Democrats out of the jam that they're in. And, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I all I hear from all sectors is that uh, things are going to get worse before they get better, that we're headed into a period of stagnation, if not recession, and that that's very likely. And it doesn't matter what sort of chips bill you pass, like that's not going to uh, you know, uh, uh, turn the the massive tides, and Democrats are swimming against those tides, and that's not to say that it's all Joe Biden's fault or he doesn't have some sort of credible story to tell on the economy. And of course, they're going to tell that story. But you know, look around. You know, things are not good, and they're not getting better. And you know, in, increased political tensions, geopolitical tensions. You know, that that's not going to help. And we're in the process of re reorganizing re our supply lines, rethinking our our industrial policy, our trade policy, uh, and it's not going that well. So, you know, sure, you know, the, you know, you could say, as John, to paraphrase John McCain, that the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are strong, uh, but that doesn't tend to convince people uh, to vote for you, at least not in the short term. Um, Jennifer, we've got less than uh, four minutes, probably just three minutes left. And at the time of this conversation, um, King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla are back at Buckingham Palace. They were greeting um, mourners there in front of the royal palace, looking at the flat bouquet, bouquets of flowers left at the palace gates. Maybe have you close out the conversation about your thoughts about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning uh, monarch in that country's history, seven decades. Well, I think in the United States, we tend to underestimate um, the devotion that the British people felt towards her. Uh, she was the only queen that um, a vast majority of the population ever knew. It was like people who were teenagers when FDR died and he was the only president they knew. So it's simply that security, that symbol of unity. Um, and now they feel a real sense of loss. And I think um, everyone has been talking about stability, that she provided stability. And I actually think it's a little different. I think what she did was provide continuity. She was able to adapt the institution of the monarchy enough uh, to remain relevant, sometimes barely when um, scandal uh, hit the royal family. Uh, but she was also able to adapt. She incorporated um, a more middle class um, feel for the royal ca uh, family. She invited cameras into Buckingham Palace. She used uh, even the internet um, in later years. So um, she was a woman who um, had seen such a broad stretch of history from Churchill to Liz Truss. Now, uh, mm -hmm. we can argue that that's been a great decline in the British um, people's uh, history uh, just in and of itself. Um, but she was there, she provided unity. And there is something admirable in an age of Twitter and oversharing and really frenetic um, activity that you had someone who was not an oversharer, to put it mildly, um, who simply did her job, rain or shine, um, and who um, frankly um, saw it was not all about her. It was about this noble idea of service. So I think there will be something lost. I think Charles is in a really hard position. Um, it's going to be very hard to duplicate the kind of affection that his mother uh, engendered. And um, um, let's face it, he's a little bit odd, a little bit cold. Um, and I think there are a certain segment of the population mm -hmm. was still 
remembers his marital difficulties. Um, so uh, nevertheless, time moves on and uh, mm -hmm. we'll see if he's able to um, kind of uh, keep the monarchy in the hearts of the British people. Right. And and Josh, let me get you um, to, I know I said Jennifer, uh, give us, you know, close this out, but Josh, real, real quickly, your thoughts, especially um, as they pertain to the new British prime minister, the last duty, public duty uh, of Queen Elizabeth was to appoint the new prime minister, Liz Truss. Right. Well, I think, you know, prime minister Truss doesn't really have, engender strong feelings amongst Americans one way or the other. Her tenure as foreign minister was mostly unremarkable except for the gaffes and, you know, policy wise, she doesn't represent any real break from the last conservative prime minister. So we'll see. Well, let's see how she how she performs. Uh, the Queen's right. legacy, on the other hand, I think will be different depending on what country the story is being told in. Frankly, Jonathan, you know, and yeah. as Jennifer points in out in the UK, she will be remembered quite rightly for her grace and statesmanship and commitment to country and duty, etc. But in many of the countries that were victims of the Imperial Britain that she represented, her legacy will be remembered less favorably. Of course, she was just a figurehead. Uh, but the re repression, corruption, and abuse of the imperial system she stood as the symbol of is now also quite rightly, in my view, being called out for the suffering and imposed on millions of innocent people around the world. So that's a complex legacy. Uh, in America, I think the queen will just be remembered as the last British royal to have engendered any degree of respect or admiration at all. There won't That won't be the same for Charles with mm -hmm. his suitcases of Qatari cash or for Harry and Meghan, who are quickly, quickly becoming the British Kardashians. Wow, Josh, um, I'm I'm going to give you the nickname of Smelling Salts. <laughs> Josh, Ro Josh Rogan, Jennifer Rubin, uh, we are way over time, as always. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hot off the press from Maybelline, New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.